Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Our sermon podcast is available in most places that you find podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to always get the next podcast. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the importance of being resilient and what it is that makes a Christian resilient. We all want better lives, and resilience helps us through difficult times to better days. Resilience in life will find its best strength in a resilient Christianity. Last last week, we looked at faith as one of three keys to establishing a bomb-proof Christianity. This week, I intended to have us look at the keys of obedience and accountability, but in my time of praying and preparing, another key that is more important to examine presented itself, Christ-likeness. We need resiliency. Life throws all kinds of unexpected events and challenges at us. It seems like every time I turn on the news, there's another tragedy, another emergency, another issue that seems to have no solution in sight, but is asking me, what will I do? Lately, it seems like all I can hear about is how upset and angry people are. How do I respond to the anger of the world? That's a question I ask myself. And how do I respond to the big questions of our day? What am I to think and feel? What can the Christian do? And what am I supposed to achieve as a Christian anyway? If someone were to ask you, what is the goal of the Christian? What would you say? Perhaps you would say, well, the goal is heaven, or the goal is to be saved, or to spend eternity with Jesus, and all of that is achieved by conversion, by believing that Jesus died for the remission of our sins, by declaring him Lord of our life. All that's achieved, heaven, salvation, eternity with Jesus. But what is the goal of the Christian after all of that is achieved? The Westminster Catechism says this, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I like that a lot. I think it serves as a great goal for the Christian. It takes the focus off of me and myself and puts my attention on God and my attention on my relationship with God. Some people might say the the goal of the Christian or the purpose of the Christian is to carry out the greatest and second greatest of commandments. We find these in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. And the text reads like this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Sounds like a good goal. Others might say the goal of the Christian is to fulfill the Great Commission. We find this in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Others might say that the goal of the Christian is holiness. And perhaps you achieve holiness by growing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. 
Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is where we find that fruit of the Spirit. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is why I want to look at the idea of obedience and accountability. Resilient Christianity results from a pursuit of holiness. I know this to be true. But one might ask, which of all these commands we just read, which of all these purposes do we follow? Or at least, which ones do we follow first? Or primarily? I mean, hopefully we'll follow all the commands of Jesus, but which ones do we prioritize? Which ones do we work on first? And with that, here comes a problem. How do we obey these commands? I'm not asking how is it possible to obey, but rather how do you determine if you have obeyed rightly? You know, right now our current society is obsessed with the idea of loving, loving our neighbor, and that's good. The problem is, is that most people hear the words love your neighbor, and they determine, they determine that they have the full capability to decide what it looks like to love your neighbor and what it is best to do to love your neighbor. In society today, there are too many people trying to love their neighbor without first loving God. Or we try loving our neighbor without understanding what true love is. And true love is redemptive. It rescues people out of their sin and unites them with God. This is why it's important to have biblical love in marriage. Because a biblical marriage... In a biblical marriage, the husband and the wife should push one another into a better relationship with Jesus. It's a love that is redemptive. It's, it's one that wants to draw people closer to God. For many Christians, if you go back, let's move away from the idea of loving your neighbor and loving God. But, you know, for Christians who are focused on making disciples... They look at that and say, oh, I can go and make disciples in all nations. And that becomes a concrete process. And they start to go, well, I know how to do that. I have these skills. I have these resources. And so they boil down disciple making into, well, what's the best strategy? And what's the best way to allocate resources? But there's far more to disciple making than that. For some, holiness or obedience, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, is more about behavior modification. If we can determine which behaviors are unholy and avoid those, then we'll be left with holiness. But nothing could be further from the truth. In all of these endeavors, we can be tempted to put ourselves <coughs> in charge and to trust our own discernment about how we're going to go about doing it and making sure that we have obeyed them properly. And that's a problem. This is where Christ-likeness comes in, and this is where Christ-likeness becomes so essential to the life of a Christian. Now, I'm just going to say this from the start. As I was preparing this week, I was going and reading a lot of articles, and I went and I saw a sermon. I heard a sermon. I read a sermon by John Stott. It was given during his final public address, and in that he artfully declares Christ-likeness as the core of Christian purpose. So I'm just going to say a whole lot of this message are not my ideas, but John Stott's ideas, and he got them from God, so, you know, pretty good source. So we're up front. If this message moves you, well, it starts with John Stott. But I wanted to convey it to you. It's one of the most beautiful messages I've ever read on Christ-likeness. 
To ignore God's calling on the Christian for Christ-likeness would be tragic. And without Christ-likeness, we cannot be resilient Christians. So John Stott commends us to the characteristic characteristic of Christ-likeness, and I'd like to take a few minutes to convey that to you. When answering the question, what purpose or goal, what the purpose or goal of the Christian is, John Stott shares these words. He says, God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. And I agree with those words. Each step I take towards becoming Christ-like gets a piece of my sinful self out of the way, gets my sinful self out of the way of trying to figure out on my own how to accomplish those great commands or great commission or how to be holy on my own. And it lets God in to take over and to show me what it is to love my neighbor as myself and to love God rightly and to make disciples and to be holy. I'm just going to say, John Stott makes one of the best cases I've ever seen for the biblical understanding of Christ-likeness. And I want to direct your attention to three passages of Scripture that speak about God's plan for Christ-likeness in the Christian. The first passage comes from Romans 8.29. And actually, uh, you've probably read the verses just before Romans 8.29. So let's let's read the both verses 28 and 29. I think 28 you'll be familiar with. 29, some of us tend to skip those words. But hear the word of the Lord from Romans 8.28 and 29. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And then here's verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I cannot tell you how many times I have stood on the promise of God that God turns to good all things for those that love him. But I'm pretty sure that in my own humanness, I was looking at that promise saying, okay, God, I'm in a miserable situation. I know you're going to make this good. And I think in my humanness, I was the one who was deciding what good meant. And I think oftentimes we read that verse, verse 28, that God will work all things for the good of those who love him, that we read that and say, okay, God's going to make it okay. He's going to make everything okay. But that's not necessarily what Romans 8.28 is saying. What Romans 8.28 is saying is that God works all things for the good of those who loved him. And he says that the good of those that love, uh, love him is that we are conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8.29 tells us that it has been God's eternal plan from the beginning, from before the beginning, to conform us to the image of the son. This is what God is destined for his people. See, in the Garden of Eden, when we sinned, we lost the image of God. We, we have it, but it's fractured, it's broken, it's not the way it should be. And, and now God is in the business of restoring the image in the Christian. And so he's doing that by conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. We are called to be Christ-like, according to Romans 8.29. It's something that God is doing for us. Romans, or not Romans, but 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us this. And we all, 
who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. His image in this passage is Christ's image. Paul is writing that it is Christ who removes the veil and we are to be made like him. We're being made in the image of God. And and again, there's something interesting about 2 Corinthians 3.18 as we read that verse. Is it's right up against another verse. There are a lot of Christians really love, but maybe we read it incorrectly. Because 2 Corinthians 3.17, you find a verse that so many people love that says, Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. How many times have people read these words and said, Ah, yes, there is freedom, freedom from guilt, freedom from bondage. And some people read those words and say, We have freedom to do what we like. To not worry so much about whether things are holy or unholy. Freedom, which is not a good way to read that passage. But the freedom here is not to be uh, a guilt-free version of ourselves, but rather freedom that enables us to become Christ-like. Note the agents of transformation in Romans and Corinthians. In Romans 8, the verse we read earlier, God was the one turning all things for our good, making us conform to the image of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, it's the Holy Spirit who is transforming us. So we're not the ones so much transforming ourselves, but God is the one making us Christ-like. The third passage I want to bring to your attention real quickly is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It's that last foundation for a theology of Christ-likeness, that we are to have this in us as Christians. And now it's set in the future. In Romans 8, was set in the past. This is what God has predestined. This is what He wants for us. In, in 2 Corinthians, it's what God is doing, or the Holy Spirit is doing in us now. And in 1 John 3, we're reading about what will happen. And it says in 1 John 3, 2, Dear friends, know that we are children of God, and... What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I'll go back to John Stott, and he he remarks that we know very little of what the resurrected body will look like, but we are told that we shall be like Jesus. We will be Christ-like. Now, you might be wondering, if Romans 8 had a nearby verse that we love to apply maybe incorrectly, it actually applies to Christ-likeness. And if 2 Corinthians had a verse that actually applies to Christ-likeness, that we maybe say, well, it's for freedom, but now it's for Christ-likeness. Does 1 John 3 have one? Kind of. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Rejoice that the Christian, that you, as a follower of Jesus, are a child of God. That's who we are. The world may remember our flaws, our mistakes, our sins. We may feel rejected by everyone, but the Christian, each of us, we are children of God. But as children of God, we are to be like the firstborn son. We are to be like Jesus. It's a privilege and a a moment to rejoice, saying, yes, we are children of God, but it's with purpose to be made Christ-like.
So how do we do this idea Christ-like? That's maybe an awkward of saying that, but I kind of like it. How do we know we're doing Christ-like? How do we know that we're, we're actually growing that way? Well, first, I think we need to understand it's not what we do. We can't make ourselves Christ-like, but instead God wills Christ-likeness into the Christian and the Holy Spirit shapes us. And, and Jesus is the image that we're conformed to. You really need to understand Christ-likeness is Trinitarian nature. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the Christ-like process. It's God who brings about this in us. Our part in Christ-likeness is that we continue to submit to the Lordship of Jesus and that we let the Holy Spirit into our lives to work what needs to be done. But Christ-likeness is a shape that we can see. And again, I'll just mention John Stott. He identifies five ways that we are Christ-like, things that we can see. The first one is that we are Christ-like in his incarnation. In Philippians 2, we're told about Jesus taking on the form of a man. You know, he's being, he is God, equal with God. And yet, when he took on human flesh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was humble in his incarnation. And we too are called to humbleness. I see very little humbleness today when you look at the world of social media, or when you look at the news, or when you look at the frustrations that our society is facing. I think we need a little more humbleness. We need a little bit more of the incarnation of Christ. A mildness. A second way we can that we are Christ-like is we are Christ-like in the way uh, we can be Christ-like in the way that Jesus was in His service. Uh, Jesus took on the role of a servant. He was willing to do uh, what the least important people of His society had to do. John Stott comments saying, Jesus performed the work of a slave in washing the disciples' feet. So we too, in our culture, must regard no task too menial or too degrading for each other. The point is this, is uh, don't punish yourself with degrading work, but let no task or calling be too small and keep you from God's call on your life. Be willing to do anything to serve Jesus. or to, Yeah, to serve Jesus. A third way that we are Christ-like is we're Christ-like in His love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 say this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As I mentioned earlier, true love, biblical love, is sacrificial. It's redemptive. Biblical love seeks to deal with sin and unite people with God. Too many people think that love is just about making others feel good. Oh yeah, we want people to feel good. But biblical love is redemptive. Are you doing that? Is that the way you're loving others in your life? In a redemptive way, drawing them near to God? A fourth way that we can see in ways that we are Christ-like is we're to be Christ-like in endurance. Jesus suffered for each one of us, and yes, that means we too will face struggles. And when we face those struggles, we do it knowing that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, making us Christ-like, and so we have endurance. We suffer. And a fifth way that we are Christ-like is in our mission. 
in Christ's mission. John 20, 21 says this. Jesus said, peace be with you. He just appeared to all the disciples after the resurrection. He says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. It's a great commission based on Christ's likeness. Go as I have gone, is what Jesus says. And I think one of the biggest reasons Christians have trouble convincing people to follow Jesus is more often than not, we do not look like the Jesus that we're proclaiming. This is not just about behavior or obedience. Because uh, it's, you know, we think, oh, okay, well, I need to be Christ like, I need to look like Jesus, so I need to, to act holy. And, and yeah, we want to be obedient, we want to be holy. But remember, the Pharisees uh, in the time of Jesus, they're the most obedient group in Israel when it comes to following God's word, or at least the way they thought God's word should be followed. But the masses, the crowds, were not flocking to the Pharisees. The masses were miserable because of the Pharisees and all the extra rules they were developing. The group, the crowds, the masses flocked to Jesus. And so we need to be like Jesus. Reverend Iskandar Nadid, a former Arab Muslim, has said this, If all Christians were Christians, that is, Christ-like, there would be no more Islam today. I want you to seek to be Christ-like. Let God work that out in you. So often when we talk about growth, we talk about the things that you and I must do. And when we talk about obedience and accountability, most of us think about bad behaviors and removing them from our lives. I think this is one reason why accountability can be such a struggle. We're, we're forcing ourselves to wrestle with our flaws, and then we make ourselves talk to somebody about our flaws, and then we stare at our problems constantly. And certainly we need someone to help us see ourselves honestly and clearly who can hold our feet to the fire about the junk in our lives. But what if you had someone who asked you, Hey, how are you like Jesus today? Did you love people like Jesus loved people today? Were you humble like Jesus this last week? How did you serve others like Jesus over the last month? That's a different kind of accountability altogether that would help us in that work, that effort to become Christ-like. You know, Christian culture has a phrase that gets thrown around, what would Jesus do? WWJD. And I get the idea behind that phrase, but sometimes that phrase bothers me. Because that's a phrase that still leaves us in charge. Because when I ask myself, well, what would Jesus do? I'm still asking myself, well, what do I think Jesus would do? Maybe it'd be better to ask, am I letting God make me like Jesus? If we ask this question each day and we give God permission again and again to make us like Jesus, we would be far more resilient in our faith and this world would be transformed. I'd remind you those words again. God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ's likeness is the will of God for the people of God. Will you let God do this transformational work in you? God, help us. Help us to put our ambitions and prior pride aside that we would be willing to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, show us the places in our lives where we resist your transforming work. Thank you, Lord, that you love each of one of us and you desire to restore your image in us. 
I pray that you would do this work, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.